My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by clean air evangelist and author of the book, Breathing Here is Injurious to Your Health, Jyoti Pandey Lavakare. Stay tuned. I want to sincerely thank each of you for listening, for subscribing to the podcast, for sharing it with your friends, and for following on social media at Dr. Abhaydandikar. I'm really quite grateful, especially in learning myself from the evolution of this show, and especially for important episodes like this one. But let's reframe it, because there's importance, and then there's imperative. And even out of the collection of imperatives out there, I think the imperative of all imperatives is for us to address the climate crisis. On the whole, and save for a few out there, we're aware and we're bothered, but sadly with an apathy towards action and without urgency because it's either impersonal or it's just not a full stop daily blocker in our lives. And for those who are being affected every day by it, the structure and policy being made for them are either keeping them vulnerable or approaching it far, far too lightly, creating band-aids instead of long-term solutions. In India, after this Diwali season, and as we approach the wintertime, people have kind of grown used to it, but the air in many urban communities is just visibly so different. And for some, this is where the imperative becomes personal and even life-changing. So I wanted to chat with Jyoti Pandey Lavakare, a financial journalist and veteran climate evangelist. She's the author of the book, Breathing Here is Injurious to Your Health, which shares her very deep and personal and life-changing view on the human cost of air pollution and how you can be the change. Jyoti is from Delhi, but had spent time abroad in the UK and US, including some formative and settled time for her and her family in Palo Alto, California with her growing kids. Jyoti and her family moved back to Delhi in 2009 and found a significant contrast in the air quality. That overwhelming air pollution was both palpable and unfortunately tolerated at an enormous but perhaps silent human cost, especially around Diwali in wintertime, and it became a compelling call to action. Jyoti writes about the journey and mindset of her family relocating back to Delhi and her becoming a clean air and climate missionary. But the memoir also captures the experience of learning that her own otherwise healthy mother is diagnosed with terminal stage four lung cancer with an obvious link to this air pollution in Delhi. She narrates it all beautifully in her book with a deeply personal vulnerability combined with the tone and urgency of a crusader, battling apathy, sparking grassroots change, and approaching policymakers and even the Supreme Court to push for the human right to breathe clean air. She also helped start the nonprofit organization Care for Air, dedicated to clean air for India. We chatted about it all, and I started by asking her about what it feels like to be a clean air evangelist right now in the autumn of 2021 in Delhi. So um, there are a lot of answers that come up when I think of that. That's a very interesting question. It feels in some ways um, that this is the culmination of everything that you've sort of worked towards because many more people are realizing how absolutely essential uh, clean air, um, you know, air that is clean of noxious viruses like what's going on now with COVID, 
but just clean air to breathe, how something that we should be able to take for granted does not exist. And um, uh, the WHO actually revised its guidelines uh, last week. And uh, now almost 100% of the world lives and breathes dirty air. So in some ways, it feels like it's a validation of the things that you've been talking about, like the crazy maverick in the corner who goes on talking about clean air, and now it's becoming mainstream. On the other hand, it also feels kind of a little bit frustrating because it feels like this is not something I should have to fight for or ask for. This is something that you know should just be there. So yeah, I guess it's a combination of those two things. Sort of this balance of you know, uh, validation and a victory with the frustrating part. I'm curious how you, I mean, because neither of those things are new, I'm imagining in this process for you and, and even in the discovery of your writing and, and how you've been able to share that with, with folks. When you get the reactions of people who are on either side of those things, where there are, you know, accelerators of this, and also the barriers. How, how does that, how do you react to those? Is it uh, the type of thing that you've grown to, you know, accommodate and it's a maturing process as you go through this? So um, I think because I went through my own learning as sort of an ordinary person learning about something that is actually deeply scientific and complex, um, I think I understand uh, people's reactions are usually either denialism or fatalism or ad hocism. It's like, you know, what can we do about it? There's, this is bigger than all of us. And, you know, just and, and then there'll be people who say and, and a lot of those people are usually from the earlier generation who say, you know, we were fine. We grew up like this, um, you know, don't become. And when I moved back to India, one of the things I heard from friends here was don't become so American. You know, it is, we've all grown up this way and you've grown up like this too because I was born and raised in India. But I think not knowing about something and growing up and then knowing about it and knowing it's there and it's, it's, it's a troubling and deeply, I mean, it's an invisible killer really if you were to put it in the most, um, um, you know, straightforward way, it, it kills and it's invisible. So, you know, when I say that, some people say, oh, that's, that's being dramatic. And I say, no, just, just unpack that. And it's true. So I think um, what I try and do is I try and walk people through the process that I went through, which is like a little bit of denialism. Like I chose to come back to India. We chose as a family to come back to India and raise our kids here, uh, make sure that they know what their background is, their heritage is, their culture is. And uh, to make that choice and uh, then to find that we're surrounded by something that could potentially be killing our children and harming their health. It was, um, it took a lot of, um, you know, I, I did not want to accept that the decision I took to come back and breathe this air was a bad one. So I was also in that denial. And therefore, when I meet other people who are in that same situation, I tell them about my experience and I say, this is how I learned. I also didn't believe it. I am a skeptic. I'm an investigative journalist by training. Um, and, and so I just went into the research. So all I do is I try and offer people the science behind it, um, you know, the public health research behind it. I try and connect the dots for them. 
and I try and tell them daily things that, that you know, I, I tell them that what was the last time, uh, you know, when was the last time you got a cough? How long did it take to go away? Is that normal when you go outside of Delhi? Do you feel better? And so when they make connections with their own lives, they realize, oh my God, when I, um, so I have a brother-in-law who is uh, asthmatic and when he gets a cough, sometimes it gets really bad and it stretches. The minute he leaves Delhi and goes to the mountains and I'm from the Kumau Hills, it's literally two days and he's fine. And so when people kind of realize that about their own health, they make, they connect the dots faster. This is of course for the people with the means to even be able to react in the first place. And this is for the people with the means to be able to escape. You know, the words that come to mind for those who don't have these resources or are incredibly vulnerable communities living in, in these kinds of environments, the words apathy and even futility come to mind. And how, how is your thinking taken those communities into mind? How, how is your research and your discoveries and the process you just described of going through your own personal process, now how is, how is that taken into account some of these uh, other communities that are also going through this, but don't have a voice to be able to express that? So um, you're absolutely right. It is, it is much more challenging to uh, be able to talk to people who don't have uh, options, who don't and, and who are sort of in, in, a, in a state of, I would say denial plus fatalism, because it's like when you're trying to make, uh, make sure you have two meals a day and you're trying to make sure that you're just surviving, um, this is just sort of, it's, it's way down on your priority. So, and for me, <clears throat> talking to people, uh, and I start always with my own backyard. So I will start with the staff that's working for me. I will start with the municipal uh, cleaner who is cleaning the roads in front of our home. So I just try and talk to people and it's just communication. To me, I think a lot of the world's problems would be solved if there was clear communication and somebody took the time to explain to people in a language they understand. And I don't just mean a language as in linguistically, but you know, with experiences and examples of things that they understand and relate to. And human beings are same, you know, the same across cultures, across socioeconomic ways. So everybody loves their children, everybody loves their family, and everyone wants to protect their family. So I think tapping into that is the best way to communicate to people how this is something that really needs to be fought at both at a grassroots level as well as at a policy level. That brings to, to mind, it's almost as if like being able to sh have that shared conversation, that dialogue uh, from that perspective is very empowering. In, in, in the same way, you know, you just mentioned um, and referred back to your own journey of returning back to India and, you know, the, the book chronicles in some ways how you, you dealt with, with that um, and then raising your kids uh, beyond that in, in this environment. Did writing the book actually help with some of that empowerment for yourself, especially in dealing with some of the experiences of trying to raise a family in this environment? Was there, was there some empowerment by just even putting this out there? Was it more of a catharsis to try and just say, hey, listen, this is who I am and, and how I'm dealing with this, and maybe this might resonate with others? 
for me, I think I had been working in uh, the area of air pollution for about three or four years before my mother got diagnosed with lung cancer. And I wrote the book as a grief memoir, so to help me process my grief, but more than that, to sort of make some meaning out of her death and, and share with people that, you know, this is a journey of, of, of so many of our, um, you know, elderly relatives. And who knows, this could be our journey if we don't do anything about it. And at least we must try and protect our children. So I have tried to touch on, you know, how it affects the young, how it affects the elderly and all of that. But to answer your question, I think for me, it was definitely some sort of catharsis because it helped me process my own mother's death and a little bit of her life because there were so many things about her that I discovered along the way because I was writing the book and I was going a little deeper. I mean, our parents to us are just our parents, right? That's the first way we know them, but they were people before they became our parents. Yeah. So I think for me to discover that person who my mother was before she became my mother was really, I mean, you hear stories that are legends and there are family legends that you kind of buy into, but when you're looking at stuff at, with such a microscopic intensity and you know, at a time when you've just lost somebody, I think it's a whole different experience. So definitely it was, it was a cathartic process for me at a personal level. I think at the level of parenting and you know, how I raised my kids and our move back, it was, more, it was less empowerment, but more a sort of clarity that I got of, oh, this is what I was trying to do when I was doing this. And that's what I was, for example, one of the decisions we took was uh, to literally throw our children into the Indian school system, which as you probably know is, is uh, you know, it can be very rigorous and uh, with that kind of uh, road learning and, and intensity, you know, they're very Indian to their core, but they also have a very strong sense of the global world. And, uh, I, you know, it's always been my aim to sort of get best practices from different cultures, because I think every culture has so much to offer us. So, yeah, I think it gave me clarity on why I was doing certain things and why I was obsessed with certain things. And I, it also made me realize how I was always this person who was looking for, you know, um, a, a sort of a an ideal world, I guess, and, and not finding it. So I think it helped me just think of all of that and write it down. In, in this whole idea of finding that idealism or finding that perfect world, there's always, you know, the, the markers that we're cognizant of that remind us that it's really not perfect and that it's really not, not so ideal. You, you know, for you and perhaps even before your mother passed, when did the alarm bells start going off personally in thinking about air pollution and climate change? Do you remember some of those kind of early moments where uh, th there is that realization that, boy, this, this, is, this is bigger than what not only just I know about, but uh, is, you know, a catastrophe in the making? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember it vividly. Actually, because I moved back, I was born and raised in, 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 in India and mostly in Delhi. And I did remember when I was a cub reporter and a, a, a brand new journalist, uh, my uh, office used to be at ITO, which had this, uh, uh, you know, which is this sort of central part of uh, old Delhi. Um, no, I shouldn't even call it old Delhi. It's like, it's pretty close to downtown. It has all the newspaper offices down the line. And it had a huge monitor right at the center of the crossing, which you would talk about how, um, you know, what air pollution was and how bad it was. And at that time, I remember 
Um, you know, even if I was wearing a lot of white, by the end of the day, my, my clothes would turn kind of gray. And air pollution that time was much more visible. Delhi was the second most polluted. I think Mexico City had the dubious distinction of being the most polluted. And we would read this and, you know, it would sort of settle somewhere in the back of your head and, and you knew things weren't great. But I don't, I think when you're also young, you think you're immortal, those things don't affect you, right? So I would just carry on with my life. It's only when I moved back and I had a lot of friends who were expats and who had lived in other countries. And now I had lived in a country with blue skies, clean air. And that's when, you know, when you're able to get that sense of detachment and just step back and see, oh my God, this is what I was breathing. And so when my, uh, when friends I grew up with, childhood friends would say, oh, come on, you know, you've turned into an American. I would just tell them, you know what? I was this person exactly like you, and I was breathing this air without knowing that this air is not clean. And it's only when I saw the differences. And so between these expat parents who I met and my, and my local uh, uh, friends, I literally, you know, there was a time I was thinking, am I overreacting or am I underreacting? I mean, I was confused and I wasn't sure because you can't see the stuff and you can't actually see the damage it does because it does that damage over a period of time, you know, it's not like coronavirus where you get the virus and you're sick and you right. know it's right. So um, I think that's when I put on my journalist hat and said, okay, I've got to research this because I don't know what uh, whether my expat friends are just kind of, you know, building this up or my my friends locally are saying, you know, are tamping it down. And that's when when I went into the research oh my God, that's when I realized, my God, this stuff is so true. It's so real. And the scary part was it was hidden in, in the public domain. You know, all the reports, all the research was out there on the internet. And honestly, I feel it, it was also because the internet was just growing around that time and everything yeah. was at the button that I could do that research so quickly. And it was literally within, I would say, six months that I turned from this um, you know, denier to this person who was going like, how do I protect my family? What decision should we sort of go back to the US? What, you know, where, what, what should we do? And um, I think that to me and having these other parents as my tribe and as my sort of, how shall I say, we were all worried. We all wanted to figure out what to do. That really helped to have other people worried about the same thing. And that's when we set up Care for Air as an organization. It was it was it just started as a platform of other parents and we would go to schools and talk to children because we felt they were the most open um, to listening you know about something like this and we just put together a presentation which just talked of the science but sort of made it very digestible so that children would understand what we were talking about and that's how this movement really started going from school to school and then we moved to hospitals and then you know, to our own uh, residential welfare associations to try and convince people that what we were talking about wasn't some strange, weird fantasy, but it's true and it's now and it's in our backyards. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back and rejoin our conversation with Jyoti Pandey Lavakare. Stay tuned. Every story told is a lesson learned and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. 
Let's rejoin Jyoti Pandey Lavkare, climate evangelist, as she reads an excerpt from her book, Breathing Here is Injurious to Your Health. This is from the epilogue of the book. It's called The Road Ahead, Fight or Flight. I will never see my mother again, hear her melodious voice practicing her tans, except in my dreams. The sharpness of my memories of her still has the ability to hurt me, but underneath lurks the fear that once those edges soften, become blurry, there will be less and less to hold on to. I know I'm not alone in mourning someone lost to a cause that can be linked directly to the foul air we breathe. Every day, I come across more and more people who are suffering from lung disease, cancers, fibrosis, strokes, cardiac disease, and so many other diseases that are triggered by air pollution. Friends whose mother's lungs were found to have fluid, whose fathers suffered a cardiac arrest soon after Diwali, non-smoking neighbors who got a sudden severe lung infection in the North Indian winter, elderly relatives who were admitted to hospital for a broken hip after a fall, but passed away from lung infection. I never wanted to be an activist. I'm not a pollution expert, scientist, public health researcher, or epidemiologist. I never set out to be an environmentalist. I think of myself simply as a survivor, an aware, informed, and vigilant resident of Delhi who is trying to survive Delhi's poor air amongst its other urban challenges. Diwali used to be a time when I prepared my house for festivities and opened, and opened it up to friends and family. But now, it is a time when I start worrying about the air quality and start shuttering my home to the outside air duct taping each window carefully in order to protect my family. That sinking feeling in my heart begins usually after Dasera, just before the bright winter sunshine of my childhood withers to a dull dystopian gray when stepping out of the door makes my eyes water. Every so often, I have a sudden memory of another sky, a clear bright blue, of crisp winter mornings. Back then, I could enjoy the beauty of an orange-pink sunset without haze obscuring my view. Winters meant outdoor picnics with friends under cotton ball skies, orange peels and peanuts eating carrot halwa, sitting in a dazzling sunshine enveloped by the intoxicating fragrance of flowers. Now I worry that I will grow old in the dim haze of gray Delhi winters, the winter of my own life overshadowed by the debris of diseases triggered by pollution. My few remaining friends suffering with me, those who can get away forced to scatter. I know many others feel the same way. Those who have known a different Delhi who still have fleeting memories of that long vanished sky. Delhi's toxic pollution has become much more than an environmental problem for me. It is now an existential crisis that clings to me like a dull, aching sadness. That's it. That's from uh, the final chapter. And not to say that everything is dire and grim, we still have a lot of work to do. And I think we have more and more people joining us to do that work. So I hope everyone who listens to your show also decides to do just that one thing that will help 
protect our earth from bad air and, and a bad climate. Like I said, I have climate anxiety. Boy, that, you know, I'm just you reading that and me listening to this is just so such a powerful, not just call to arms and action, but how meaningful and emotional this book must have been for you to to conceptualize and to write and and even to carry on, uh, you know, as you do your work. Do you have uh, reminders of this every time someone hears that, or you know, are the reflect or the reactions or the uh, reflections are are they similar to mine? Are are they ones of of real uh, hope, uh, or are they ones of sadness or, or grief? Even is your does your reaction change every time you read it? And is it parallel to the ones that um, those who you read it to, you know, does it mirror theirs in some ways? Yeah, I think, uh, yes. I think every time I read this, there is, it reminds me not just of the time that I wrote the book and I wrote the sentence, but it just reminds me that there's still so much to do. And, you know, although so little has changed, at least there is change because there is change. I mean, there, there are and that's when you come back to the hope part. There are people who are beginning to talk about this in louder and louder voices. I think the whole world is realizing how much uh, climate change is going to affect. It's no longer called climate change. It's a climate crisis. And that's as it, ha as it should be. So, yeah, it does. I mean, I just wish I could get this out to more people. I really feel it's important. And that's why now I keep trying to. It's not the book that I'm pushing. It's the mission that I'm pushing. I literally wrote this mission and when I ask when I ask you that can I read or you know can can you talk about this book or can can you read this book or can you tell like I've told everybody who's got the book please read it and then pass it on to somebody else who will read it and then ask them to pass it on so it's not about you know sales figures it's about how many people will read that book because reading I think is going to make them understand without immersing themselves I don't want anyone to have to come here to breathe the bad air and to have their eyes water and their headache to make, to make them realize how bad it is. Actually, there was an art installation where they uh, made these little domes where you could breathe the air of different um, uh, uh, countries. And uh, it was actually, to me, it was really amusing that people would actually go into, it's like our chief minister in Delhi has referred to Delhi as a gas chamber. So yeah. why would you put your head in a gas chamber? But really that's how it is. And I want the world to understand that. And I want, you know, of course, Indians to understand it, but also the world. I'm, I'm just so curious, you mentioned that you had first noticed this or you became mature and confident um, about this more recently when you returned, but when you were that cub reporter and you noticed that your clothes were graying, right? Looking back, what's what do you think stopped you at that point from pursuing this kind of avenue or this kind of journalism or this kind of storytelling and, and granted, you know, it's easier to look in the rearview mirror and try and correct things. But, you know, what would you have done differently, perhaps? I think I would have questioned more and I would have come to the answers sooner. But um, and, and I mean, and this is not really to um, to diss anything, but I think, unfortunately, in the Indian education system, you're not really taught to question everything. You're taught to accept and I think that's also culturally as, as Indians, you're taught to accept and, you know, it has a good side and a bad side to, uh, you know, there are always pluses and minuses. It's, 
ultimately acceptance is a very big healer as well so i think i'm not i'm not saying that that's i should not have accepted that right but maybe i could have questioned more and um you know i think if i had questioned why is it that we all accept that our clothes are gray at the end of the day and what is it that's making them go gray and is if my clothes are getting gray what about my internal organs i mean if i had come to that sort of logical conclusion at that time i think i might have been able to do more and work more towards this not that i think things might have been different because it's it's a really all pervasive problem and you have to remember we you know india is a very in a very aspirational state of um, you know everybody wants more there's more consumption there is more than anything that has more consumption any country that will have more consumption and economic development will obviously have more emissions and so you know it's not to say that things would have been different but i think having choosing paths of cleaner growth is something that all developing countries from an early part and and i think in some ways you can probably from the dirty technologies right through to the yeah. cleaner technologies because you know you were so way behind anyway so to to not at least at least not have a, a sickening and sick population and i think one of the reasons why india suffers even more is because we already have malnutrition and so much else going on that you know things like Uh, dirty air just make it so much worse and uh, unfortunately because it is not uh, realized at a very ground uh, grassroots level you don't get the kind of political push for it i mean if you had if if it was an election um sort of um bellwether issue yeah, yeah people talk about i think you had the garibi hatao uh, uh, thing during time of indira gandhi you had you know many things have had but if ever clean air became an election electoral issue i think that's when uh, our politicians would move much faster to put in place policies that would help us get uh, cleaner more breathable air i i have this is a question that um, comes to mind also if you had been perhaps more uh, in tune with with this kind of thinking earlier on and there was momentum or for that matter that you realized that there wasn't that kind of momentum do you think you would have stayed in india or even returned to india you know i don't know i've asked myself that question so many times there's a very deep rooted connection to india that both my husband and i have and and i'm very happy that my children have also been able to experience so much of that um i've also been able to spend much more time with my uh, with my mother and my father even i mean i thought to myself is it would i have come back i would have lost those 10 years that i got those extra 10 years that i got with my mom uh, you know it's one thing when your parents are in in the same country as you and it's another thing when they visit you you know once a year you visit them and once a year right. they visit it's like a whole different way of even building a relationship and that's one of the reasons why we decided that no we want to have a more sort of immersive uh experience of relationships even and i think i really don't have the answer to that sometimes i yeah. feel like something really frustrated and i look at what's going on and how nothing is changing and i think oh my god i mean i put myself through this um at other times i feel no i mean if we all run away from from all of this then what's left right, right. um so i don't know i mean i really i'm sorry i really don't have an answer no no I, and it's it's so much easier right to look retrospectively and there's so many pros and cons you know of 
staying uh, to help put out a burning fire versus uh, escaping to, to places where there is no fire or smoke. You know, both, both have clean arguments, so to speak. And, and I will say that in the face of clear and present danger, like you're saying, there are only two options, flight or fight. Or fight, right. And I will also say that I still really miss the blue skies and the clean air of, uh, of Palo Alto so much. There are days when I just, you know, my eyes just hunger to see that. And, you know, some a friend will send a photograph and I won't be looking at the photograph. I'll be looking at the skies behind that blue. I mean, we don't even see that blue here. We did during the lockdown a little bit, but um, no, not, not anymore. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back and rejoin our conversation with Jyoti Pandey Lavakare. Stay tuned. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with climate evangelist Jyoti Pandey Lavkare. You wrote about how art and music and literature and photography and, you know, all are becoming vehicles in improving awareness and maybe even bending the dialogue towards more understanding for air pollution and climate change. Is the directive now to have just more of that, to create a waterfall of this art? Or, or is it to actually uh, combine that with incremental change and translate that to financial, political, and policy uh, directives? So, you know, it, this is such a big problem that you actually need all of what you mentioned. You need a change at a policy level. You need um, economic policy to reflect environmental policy. You need uh, people writing about it. We need films made about it. We need poetry about it. We need everyone to be so aware because we're a country of 1.4 billion people and I'm only talking of India right now. Other countries also face a lot of air pollution, but I'm focusing on India because we're sort of the ground zero for, for I mean, even China has cleaned up its act. And I think, it's very important to have this as a pervasive thing. So wherever you turn around, you see that this is a problem and you've got to solve it. It's like a reminder all the time that unless you don't solve this, the most basic of problems, everything else is going to be uh, secondary. And, you know, sometimes when people ask me this question that, you know, um, but what do you do with economic growth? Do you want the country to stop growing? And, you know, we need, you know, all I, all I ask is, um, for many people, I mean, people who, especially people who are growing rich on pollution is, is what I want to say, like, <clears throat> there is a collective resource, right? But there are some people who, who end up polluting it much more. And there are others who will just suffer that problem without getting the benefits of that uh, economic, uh, you know, profit that has been made. And the question I ask people is, if somebody said, okay, I'm going to give you like 10 crores or a million dollars, and I'm also going to give you lung cancer with it, which one would you choose? Would you choose that, okay, I'll take the lung cancer and I'll also take, I mean, health is, has got to be, to go back to a cliche, health is wealth. So if yeah. you are sickening and, and, and making an entire population um, less healthy, 
And just because that is not being reflected into the GDP numbers of your country does not mean it, it isn't there. It exists, but it's an intangible, unmeasured uh, sort of, you know, negative there. I'm, I'm going to pull my best impression of John Stewart in this situation and, and ask the very obvious question, which is, in the rooms that matter, why doesn't death poor health and global calamity, why doesn't that produce a full stop in this argument? What more compelling forces are there in this discussion than that? Is it simply that this is not visible to those in power from the economic bottom line or the political bottom line? Because if I really put my my brain to this, Death, poor health, and global calamity. I, I'm not sure what other incredibly compelling uh, reasons there are to make dramatic change. You know, I think there's only one answer that I've, and I've thought about this quite a lot myself. Um, I think the answer is that we're, as a race, I guess human beings can be quite selfish. And if it's not affecting you personally, it doesn't, you, you're not able to really tune into the empathy that you need to see how it's affecting other people. And so in these rooms of power and policy and decision-making that you're mentioning, I think those are people who are able to protect themselves from, you know, they have the best air purifiers, they're able to sort of just jet themselves out of uh, the burning fire and, and the smoke and get out. And so it doesn't seem as compelling to them because there are still people who sleep under flyovers who don't have the option but to breathe the fumes uh, of uh, vehicles and, and, and burning and uh, industrial emissions, and they don't have options. But those people are, don't have the voice that is needed to sort of compel those in power and those in their air, air purified rooms to actually say, no, this is for the greater benefit of all of us. And I think until we don't have that, that kind of big change is not going to come from just wanting to do good. It's going to come from people who will put their money, like, you know, you have green bonds, you now have pensions, uh, and, and people saying, I will not invest in fossil fuel companies. I will only invest in companies which are going for uh, sustainable growth or, or, you know, they have a circular economy. And I think that's where, because again, that taps into our selfishness and survival, because those people who were making their money off companies which were producing fossil fuels and emissions will now be forced to say, okay, I don't have the kind of investment to, and people are not investing in this anymore. So I've got to make electric cars or I've got to make, I've got to re, you know, rejig my business. I have to tweak it. I have to pivot and I have to do this. And those are the people who will survive. And, and in your experience, having lived in the US and, and the UK even uh, and India, are the strategies here the same everywhere, or, or is it just that you can develop uh, allyship and coalitions perhaps easier uh, in some of these environments as opposed to in India? Um, I think uh, the biggest challenge uh, that India faced in terms of, uh, of, of somebody like me trying to uh, you know, make a difference and trying to spread awareness and, and many, many people who are working in the sector is that we're not just a country of over a billion people, 1.4 billion, but there are languages. I mean, every few kilometers, uh, uh, every you know, 100 kilometers you move, the language and the dialect changes. So there isn't, un unlike in the UK and the US, where you could have one common sort of language to explain this to people, 
and and to you know bring awareness to them in india you've got to learn you know you've got to say the same thing in tamil and marathi and and you know every every language and yeah. and so it becomes that much harder to uh, you know if you're trying to uh, spread a common message of i mean even if you were to say this is like it's like in in danger you say fire run you know you've got to yeah. have a common you've got to have somebody uh, who understands uh, that language right yeah. so i have found that to be the biggest challenge and that's why i have a huge respect for grassroots groups that go you know literally from village to village and, and city uh, to city and urban town to urban town to explain this in the local language to people and tell them that you know this is what's killing us and really we have some of the um, some of the solutions are in our hands but a large part of the solutions are in the hands of the government and you've got to ask for it you've got to vote with your ballots you've got to vote with your wallets and that's how you've got to get this kind of change for your family because if you don't do it you just die faster there is actually something called an aqli which is air quality life index now which mm. i used to explain to people because that uh, tries to explain how you are losing uh, the, the number of years and the number of months uh, of your life because you're living in an area with bad air so you know that's actually a, a really cool tool to be able to explain quickly to people and they have it on a map so you can actually click on 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 any part of india and it will tell you that if you live in raipur you're losing 8.4 years if you live in delhi you're losing you know 9.7 years of your life and so i think those kind of tools are 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 important and they're for for a communicator like me who's not i'm not looking at the at the uh methodology and all of that i'm looking at uh the dramatic way that i can explain to someone very quickly sort of your elevator pitch and if you're living here this is how much of your life you're losing and then the person goes what and then you've got them hooked and then you want to explain to them what's happening what's contributing to it what they can do about it and i think that those are the things that will make a difference you're listening to trust me i know what i'm doing after a quick break we'll come back and rejoin our conversation with jyoti pandey lavkare Stay tuned. I'm Abhay Dandekar and welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with clean air evangelist Jyoti Pandey Lavkare, author of the book Breathing Here is Injurious to Your Health. Let's pretend you meet a new family who's just moved to Delhi and they're aiming to live there and they really have no idea or background of your work or of any of these problems they that we've been talking about. What do you say to them in in the spirit of both coexisting in a city like Delhi in this backdrop that you've just described and, and trying to thrive but at the same time taking some direct action to help change that's a great thought experiment i think what i would uh, you know get it depends on the demographic of the family if they have young children then i think they would be more open to uh, listening um, to how 
the health of their young one is going to be affected by pollution. So I would definitely tell them that, you know, there is this thing, do you know about it? It's like how you would tell your neighbor or a new, new person who's moved into your, into your block that, hey, here are the good things and here are the not so good things. So I would certainly, and, and like I've said in my book in the epilogue, um, you know, for me, air pollution has stopped being just an environmental hazard. It's become an existential uh, problem for me because I want to live in Delhi. Delhi has so many great things going for it. Like any city which is polluted, they have their good things, but then there's this kind of shroud of, of almost death that, that surrounds it. And so I would try and explain to this new family and I would give them a lot of, first I would actually give them my book now because Honestly, I, I wrote this book also for the reason that I felt like I was repeating myself and repeating myself, and I felt like a stuck record. And so now many times when people ask me about stuff, I go like, hey, can I just send you my book? I mean, can you just yeah. read if you're interested more details here? And then I would just tell them that, you know, watch out for your first winter, because that's when it's going to mm -hmm. really help you. And, that's, and be aware when you see, uh, 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 you know, bright sunlight in the winter, that doesn't necessarily mean you can go out running. One of the first things I would say, if, if they have, uh, you know, if they can invest in a particle counter to, to be able to measure, because when you see, when you see those numbers going up, you know, then your brain understands this is what, what is happening. So these are the things I would say, you know, invest in a particle counter, definitely you will have to, uh, if they have the means to um, air purify their homes, I would teach them how to, I have duct taped my windows because mm -hmm. in, uh, um, I don't want that air seeping into the house and a purifier works much more efficiently when the room is, is sealed. Sealed. So, yeah, so those are the things I would say. And I would say, please watch. I mean, the first year, just watch and protect yourselves. Yeah. And then, you know, we're here, join us, join the tribe. We want to grow the tribe and we want to do things with it. But I, I would now, I guess I wouldn't want to scare them off so much because I've noticed that so many people who joined Care for Air in the early days learned so much so fast about uh, air pollution that a lot of people just left. And that's what I actually say in one chapter of my book, where, which talks about the expat exodus and then a lot of the, you know, a lot of people who were actually born and raised in India, the exodus of such people. I mean, I myself am trying to, in this winter, trying to be uh, leave Delhi and go to uh, maybe a coastal place. Um, I was thinking maybe Goa or someplace where we can actually, you know, where some of the air pollution is blown away. So that's not the right, I mean, to, re to reduce air pollution, you have to reduce emissions. I want to say that at yeah. the start. And yeah. if there, how do you protect yourself? How do you reduce exposure? So there are two things, reducing air pollution and reducing exposure. And as a doctor, you will know that, you know, you have to, you have to remain alive to fight the fight. So. Yeah. You know, in the end, you are an artist, you are a musician, you are uh, an economist, and you're a journalist. You wear so many talented hats here, and you have so many lenses on the world. In, in the summary of all this, what makes you optimistic and perhaps even hopeful about uh, this movement and about the messages that people are trying to synthesize and translate. Wait, what makes you say that I'm optimistic? <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, to, to some degree, I would imagine that following a message and joining movements and creating change 
is fueled by positive outcomes. And to motivate yourself to get to those positive outcomes, there, I imagine, would need to be some kind of hope and some kind of optimism. So I would like to believe that there is a happy ending for all of us at the end of this. I am not so sure at this point because I think many, India has missed the bus many times. I think there was a time um, during the coronavirus lockdown when people were actually, be, you know, they were able to see the stuff that we were talking about. Uh, it was like suddenly there were blue skies. You were able to see, people were able to see, you know, mountain peaks from, 300 kilometers away. Those were the things and they, you know, they were talking about, oh, this is what my grandmother used to talk about. I don't want to say I'm pessimistic because until there's life, there's hope. But I think the reason I continue to work for this is because there is no option. What is the option? Yeah. There's no option. You know, I mean, the only option is, yeah, are you, you know, some of us maybe have the ability to fly off to a country where the, the sky is bluer and the air is cleaner, but you know, home is home just because your home is filthy. You're not going to dump it and go off to and stay at and check into a hotel, right? I mean, you just have to do it. There is no option. It's more about you've got to just fight this because the option is to be apathetic and die. So I don't want to sound so dire about it. I mean, their life has good moments. You, uh, but but you know, in the in the context of saying, if I was really optimistic, Abhay, I would not have encouraged my children to leave the country. I was very clear when we moved here that I wanted at least uh, an undergrad education for my children to India because uh, with in India because I wanted them to um, feel a very strong sense of belonging here. Um, and so the plan had been that we told them that undergrad is in India. After that, you can do what you like and we'll support you. Yeah. But it's literally only air pollution that made me change my mind. And I told my kids, you know what, guys, if you get admissions in good colleges, we'll support you. Just go. Because I feel very responsible that my husband and I took the decision on their behalf to bring them here. And so for 10 years of their lives here, they breathed really bad air. Yeah. And we were in Delhi, right? I mean, so this is like the absolute worst point. And so I've already uh, ruined their lungs and their overall health to some extent. That 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 that's a guilt that stays with me. Um, so at least now, when they have the option to leave, I've told them, go. Don't don't look back. Don't look at us. Just go. And I I think that's a very hard thing for any parent to say to tell your kid just run, leave. And that's. If I had been really, really optimistic, I would not have, I would have said, you know, things will get better. Let's wait it out. Let's sure. fight. So sorry, but I'm not really super optimistic. But yeah, I don't think I'll give up the fight because there's no option. I think having that, that punctuation of saying the situation is dire, but the survival is so important that we, we have to do it. It's an imperative. It's an imperative for our collective survival. I'm just grateful that there are people who are um, magnifying and amplifying and sounding off on this and hopefully creating more and more change like you. Jyoti, thank you so much for, for joining us. What a treat to have this conversation. I hope you'll come back and join us again. I hope so. It was great fun talking to you, Abel. 
Thank you so much, Jyoti, for everything that you do. And I'm grateful to you, Preet, for introducing us. Again, I urge everyone to please learn more about Jyoti's work at careforair.org, which also has some action-oriented resources and education. For information on the Air Quality Index, please visit airnow.gov. Remember, be the change and get educated and fix yourself first. Then get active and get organized. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar.